My name is Keith Beavers, and in my 45th year of life, you would think that I would understand by now that if you eat ice cream too fast, you get brain freeze. <sighs> I'll never learn. What's going on, wine lovers? Welcome to episode six of Vine Pears Wine 101 podcast. My name is Keith Beavers, and I am the tasting director of Vine Pear. What, what's, what are you guys doing? So white wine making. You know, if red wine making was the messy stuff, white wine making is a little less messy, a little more, I don't know, there's an attention to detail that white wine has, and you gotta just kind of, well, you know what, let's get into it. Let's talk about how white wine is made and all the awesome. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Barefoot Wines. At Barefoot, we believe life's more fun when we're together. That's why Barefoot has something for everyone. With a diverse collection of delicious, refreshing wines that are sure to have you reaching for another sip. Are you looking for a smooth and silky Pinot Noir? Or how about a bright and juicy Riesling? Do you need some bubbles for your brunch? Whatever your taste, Barefoot Wine has you covered. Just head on over to barefootwine.com and use our flavor profile tool to find your perfect match. Wow. Barefoot Wine. Get barefoot and have a great time. So, after harvest, things get a little quiet in the vineyard. Every, all the humans are gone. And, you know, all the animals, there's no more grapes to eat. Maybe, the, maybe on the ground, the grapes that fell. But after that, all the action is happening in the wineries we saw in the red wine episode. So it's a little bit quiet. And the green leaves of the vine, they're green because of the stuff called chlorophyll that is produced through photosynthesis because of the light and the sun and all that. And the production of chlorophyll, the green stuff, is not only reliant on the light, but it's also reliant on warm weather. So as it gets colder outside... The vines are starting to go to sleep. They're not producing as much chlorophyll. And then what you see is that chlorophyll breaking down. And as that green stuff breaks down, what begins to emerge are different colors. These are pigments that are already in the leaf, but are they're sort of like complementary pigments to the green, to the bright, vibrant green during the growing season. And these pigments are a class called carotenoids. And they range in color from yellow, orange, to red. There's actually a subclass of carotenoids called beta-carotene that has a very, very high concentration in carrots. Orange, carrots, carotenoids. And this awesome nature stuff happens with white wine grapevines and with red wine grapevines. The difference is red wine grapevines produce more of this thing called anthocyanin. Remember last episode we were talking about during the winemaking process as fermentation is happening, all the pigments in the red wine grape skins are leached into the new wine because of the maceration process because of the warmth in that area, in that environment. Those pigments are called anthocyanins. They are more of a red-blue pigment. So if you notice... White wine grapes don't have any blue or red in them. So the only color nature allows a white wine grape to have are the underlying complementary pigments that you would see complementing the red, blue of a red wine grape. So the carotenoids, that, that, that pigment that's yellow, orange, and red, and the, chlor the remaining chlorophyll, that's what a white, white wine grape basically is color-wise. 
And it's thought that before humans domesticated the vine, the Eurasian vine, which we got the Vitis vinifera from, it's thought that every grapevine was actually red. And somewhere along the line, before we domesticated it, some gene, some gene turned off and stopped producing anthocyanin. Isn't science just so awesome? And even though the color of these grapes is different from our eyes, because of the pigments allowed in nature to color them, inside those grapes, they're both the same. A white wine grape has clear flesh and clear juice. A red wine grape has clear flesh and clear juice. And this brings us to the fundamental difference between white wine making and red wine making. The Oxford Wine Companion, edited by um, Jedi wine master Jancis Robinson, states that white, white wine making is the production of wines with almost an imperceptible golden color. Okay, the reason why I say this is any grape existing on the planet except for a small class of red wine grapes that have actually red flesh, which are called Tontarier at some point we'll talk about. Every grape on the planet, red or white, can be made into white wine. Let that soak in. Okay, bear with me here. Because white wine grapes do not have anthocyanin, there is no color pigments to leach from the skins into the juice to make a certain color of wine. And just like red wine grapes, white wine grapes have tannin in them. There's tannin in the skins, there's tannins in the seeds, there's tannins in the stems, just like red wine grapes. But it's thought that excessive natural tannins and other phenolics, these dissolved organic solids in wine, result in a bitter white wine. So it's always been a practice to when making white wine, the key is immediately separating the skins from the juice before you ferment the wine. You always ferment a white wine with just the juice. Skins be damned. So when white wine grapes are harvested, they're brought to the winery, just like everything else. They're sorted, distemmed, sorted, however many times they want to sort the grapes. And then those white wine grapes are crushed, just like red wine grapes. But before the fermentation process happens, they immediately separate the skins from the clear juice. That's crazy, right? You know, there's no need to have the skins because they don't have color in them. But one, one thing that skins and, and all of that stuff, organic stuff that you take away does, is it helps protect the juice from things like oxidation. You ever take an apple, slice it open, and leave it on a kitchen table, come back like an hour later, and it starts to brown? Well, that happens with wine, too. And with red wine making, it's a lot slower to happen, the oxidation, because of all the organic material in the way of the juice. But with white wine juice, yo, I mean, like, oxygen's like, hey, what's going on, man? You want to party? So what they do with this juice after it's been separated from the, from the skins is they settle it, they clarify it. So remember we were talking about racking last episode? Well, they rack the stuff, let it settle, siphon, settle, siphon, settle. Then they'll add yeast and sulfur dioxide because remember that apple we were talking about? If you were to cut an apple and leave it open and then shock it with a little bit of SO2 and then come back in an hour, it would still retain its color because sulfur dioxide blocks oxidation. And then sometimes what they'll do is they'll chill this mass down a little bit, kind of put the yeast to sleep a little bit, don't, like, don't get started yet, guys, and kind of solidify everything in the stabilization of it all. Then they'll put that chilled mass 
of liquid into an into, into a fermentation tank for the magic of nature to start doing its nature. So fermentation is happening and all the magic is happening like it does in red wine. But the thing is, there's not a lot of organic material to be kind of pushing up to the top. So as a white wine ferments, there's no real maceration. It is producing alcohol and carbon dioxide, just like in red wine. And instead of just all that organic mass lifting to the top, what's happening is as the yeast cells die and become lees, they start rising to the top. And that is the cap that is usually formed with white wine making. Now, the thing is, there's this crazy thing that happens with yeast cells after they die. And we'll get into this even more with, with sparkling wine. It's called autolysis. But I'll get into it more down the road. But, but what it is, is the dead yeast cells interact with constituents in the wine. And that reaction imparts a little more depth into a white wine. And after the fermentation process is over, it's a you know, the yeast cells are there, they're rising to the top. Sometimes winemakers will allow the yeast cells and the wine to interact with each other for a long time, up to three years. But during this time after fermentation, something very unique happens. And this happens in red wine too, but it's a little more apparent in white wine. There is an acid called malic acid. It is, it's named, it's Latin for apple, and it's, it's, it's the, the first acid that was found in apples. So it's, just think about an apple. It's crisp, it's tart. So what happens is in this warm environment after fermentation, when this new white wine is kind of just sitting there with the lees, in that warmth, there is a bacteria called lactic, lactic acid bacteria. That lactic acid bacteria attacks malic acid and creates lactic acid, which means lactic, latte, cream, butter. So if you've ever, if you've ever had a white wine with a creamy note to it, usually it's a Chardonnay that butteriness, that is the result of malolactic conversion. If you think about it like this, literally an apple, bite into an apple, that's malic acid. Drink a little bit of milk, that's lactic acid. That kind of gives you the difference between the two. And if you add those to wine, you can see how that can contribute to the body or less of a body of a wine. But body, again, guys, it's subjective, I know. But not every winemaker wants a creamy white wine. You know, they want some of them, a lot of winemakers want crisp, acid, high, vibrant white wines. So to block malolactic from happening or to reduce it, a little bit more sulfur dioxide blocks that. So not only does it hold color, sulfur dioxide, it blocks oxidation, but also stops malolactic conversion to make a nice crispy white wine. Sulfur dioxide, sulfites, man, it's real. And that's how white wine is made. But you're like, wait a second, Keith. Earlier you had said any grape on the planet save for this one little class of grapes can be made into white wine. What's that all about? Well, if you know, I mean, we'll talk about, again, we're going to talk about a lot of this during the sparkling wine episode. But the sparkling wines they make in Champagne, those wines are made from three varieties, two of which are red skin grapes. Yeah. It's crazy. So the thing is, if you want to make a white wine from a red wine grape, all you have to do is separate the skins from the juice before fermentation. I've had white Pinot Noir. I've had white Cab Franc. It's, it's, it's cool. It's really cool stuff. I mean, you don't have the intensity of the, of the complexity of the phenolic, all the craziness from what red wine will give you. But there is a definite, like... It has its, it's its own kind of awesome when you take a red wine grape and turn it into a white wine. And then you're like, wait a second, Keith. So what, what if, just, just bear with me, Keith. What if we didn't separate the white wine skins from the grapes and we just made 
a white wine like a red wine? I mean, I know you said the tannins and all that, but what, what exactly would actually happen? Well, wine lovers, what would happen is you would take white wine grapes, then you distem, you sort, you crush, and then just like with red wine grapes, you just put the skins, the seeds, the, the flesh, and the juice all in the big mass. You remember, it's called must. You create must from this white wine. It's just, it's just, like, a, just like red wine. But the thing is, with white wine grapes, they don't have those anthocyanins. They don't have those dark colors to them. So as a wine, a wine will naturally, during the winemaking process, this stuff must, will naturally oxidize a little bit. The thing with the white wine medium is you see the browning before you would with a red wine. So you would have this sort of must and all this junk and you would put, and you'd put some sulfur in there to, to hold the, hold some color and you'd put the yeast in there and then you would start the fermentation process. But what's happening here is there's, there's these, now we're fermenting white wine with skins, like red wine, like what's going on? So you're like, well, how, what's maceration? What's happening with the maceration? Well, the thing is not a lot of maceration is happening even with these skins. What they do have are those oxidizing carotenoids, which are kind of browning a little bit but not completely. So what, you're, what you have here is this sort of like, I don't know, this sort of like, it's not white wine, it's not really golden anymore, but it's turning a little rusty, if you will, maybe a little bit amber in color, maybe a little bit orange. That's right, orange wine, the new hue you've been hearing about for the past five or six years. So white wine made like red wine creates orange wine. <laughs> it's just because of the oxidative nature of the winemaking process and the browning and the exposure to the skins and what pigments are in those skins. And then those oxidizing a little bit creates this kind of beautiful amber color. I know it's called orange wine. I like to call it amber wine, but it's orange wine. But the thing is, I know this is a new thing and everyone's like raving about it and it's awesome. I'm so, so great that people are getting into orange wine because it's a beautiful thing. The thing is, it is ancient, man. It's old school. There is a, so you had like, you know, the Roman Empire, which they made quote unquote white wine was basically orange wine. Then you had like Greece and they had the wine. But, you know, the, the other country that no one really talks about that is so influenced by the grapevine is the, the country of Georgia. Besides Rome and Greece and all that, the, the, Georgia is so tied to the grapevine, it's intense. They're, they're actually, if you look at the script and how their language is written, it's thought that their actual script of their language was inspired by the grapevine. It's really, really intense. And some of the oldest winemaking facilities on the planet after the, 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 the Iran uh, discovery in 1968 was found in Georgia. And it is thought that the, the idea of orange wine comes from that place in Georgia. And to, 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 I mean, the thing is, there are countries like Slovenia, Croatia, and Georgia who've been doing orange wine for a very long time. Just us here on the American market, we were like, I don't, I don't, I don't know what that is. But now we actually do. It's kind of moving around. So what you have here is you have a, a white wine made like a red wine, which becomes amber or orange. And when you when you sip these wines, the unique thing about this is you get tannin. Because remember, tannin is in the skins and the seeds of grapes. So if you're fermenting white wine with the skins, you know, during the warmth of for the fermentation process, those tannins will be leached into the actual wine. So what you have is you have this sort of like, 
it's weird. It's between white and red. It has, it has a lot of acidity and it's very clean. It's very almost salty and, and refreshing, but at the same time, it has a depth to it because of the tannins. And it's, it's this bizarre thing, but it really works, especially with food. It's a great food wine because it has this sort of like, it's not intense like a red wine. It doesn't have all the phenolic stuff on it that, weigh your, that would weigh your palate down, but it has the astringency and the austerity of a red wine with the refreshment of a white wine. And it's often not served as cold as a white wine would be served. Instead, it's serve closer to a red wine. It's like kind of in the middle. I know it's confusing and it's a new thing that we're kind of getting used to because it's ancient and we brought it back. But guys, if you get a chance to try orange wine, they're very cool. One thing to note, they are a little bit um, hit or miss as far as balance is concerned because we're, we're talking about what's called an oxidative process. We're allowing oxygen to really attack these wines, but we're doing things to protect the wine so it doesn't get oxidized before it goes into your glass. I know that sounds intense, but that's orange wine. And if you think about it, it's kind of cool. You know, I mean, like when I talk about, we talk about white wine, this is the white wine episode. You're separating the skins from the juice and all that. That's modern winemaking. That is a decision that was made for commerce. Whereas orange wine is like this old ancient style that is now made today in a way that's sort of protective, but it's sort of a representation of before modern winemaking, which is really cool. I mean, the way orange wine is actually aged is often in clay jars called amphora aquarii, which are buried in the earth. And then the orange wine goes in there to to uh to age for a long time and it has a little bit it still gets a little bit of oxygen from the top it's it's some fascinating stuff just google orange wine making on an image search and you'll see it. it's pretty awesome so white wine a little bit different than red wine has its own kind of awesome orange wine every white wine can maybe be made for a red wine grape all this stuff is you got it all in your head now it's all there let's let's keep it going you know, if you're picking up what I'm putting down, you're digging what I'm doing, go ahead and give me a rating on iTunes, maybe a review. Definitely subscribe and absolutely tell your friends so we can get this Wine 101 thing up and everyone can learn about wine and get more confident. Wine to the people. Check me out on Instagram. It's at VinePairKeith. I do all my stuff and stories. And also, you've got to follow VinePair on Instagram, which is at VinePair. And don't forget to listen to the VinePair podcast, which is hosted by Erica, Adam, and Zach. It's a great deep dive into drinks culture every week. Now for some credits. How about that? Wine 101 is recorded and produced by yours truly, Keith Beavers, at the VinePair headquarters in New York City. I want to give a big old shout out to co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mellon. I also want to thank Daniel Grinberg for making the most legit Wine 101 logo. And I gotta thank Darby Seaside for making this amazing song. I mean, listen to this epic stuff. And finally, I wanna thank the Vine Pear staff for helping me learn more every day. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next week. This episode of Wine 101 is sponsored by Barefoot Wines. At Barefoot, we believe life's more fun when we're together. That's why Barefoot has something for everyone. With a diverse collection of delicious, refreshing wines that are sure to have you reaching for another sip. Looking for a smooth and silky Pinot Noir? How about a bright and juicy Riesling? Need some bubbles for your brunch? Whatever your taste, Barefoot Wine has you covered. Head over to barefootwine.com and use our flavor profile tool to find your perfect match. Barefoot Wine. Get barefoot and have a great time.